I wanted to, I just have been thinking and, and praying about uh, this opportunity for several weeks now and God kept on bringing into me a place by the name in the Bible called Caesarea Philippi. And it's a very familiar scripture to us where, where, where Peter confesses that you are the Christ, you are the living God. And so I'm going to go a little bit into teacher mode if, if that's okay today. And I want to talk a little bit about that, that scripture and the surrounding and the background of it. So today we are going to go on a journey with Jesus to Caesarea Philippi. This was the starting point of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So from the time he went to Caesarea Philippi, every event is leading towards the cross from that point in time. Everything that happens from here on in is preparing the disciples for when he's not going to be there. So Jesus has spent three years of his time preparing them to be ready for this moment. He, he, he was preaching to them. He was teaching. He was performing miracles. He was helping them overcome problems that they had seen. Now this is a journey for him to teach the disciples how to act and be decisive, not to fast and pray. There's times when Jesus separated them away and he took them away and they fasted and prayed and did that many times even before the cross. But at this moment, he's actually teaching them how to be decisive, how to make a decision amongst the chaos of what their life would be. We think our life is chaos. Read the book of Acts to see what the apostles went through in their life when Jesus was no longer with them. But before on the journey up, he just heals a blind man, feeds 4,000 people, and warns them of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's like a review of what they need to see. Jesus is healing, Jesus is feeding, Jesus is teaching. So Jesus takes the disciples and travelled further north or further in any direction than they had ever travelled before. Jesus travels to the largest spiritual battleground in the whole of the nation of Israel. Now in Jerusalem, there was a few, you might be surprised, but there was actually a few small temples and different things like that. But obviously the main temple was there and it was mainly Jewish people, Herod and Roman soldiers and guards were in the area, but it was predominantly Jewish. Sephorus was a big city, just literally a few miles from where Jesus lived. And we believe that's where Joseph, his father worked as a carpenter, as a builder. And that was a, that was a, a, a city that had theatres and a lot of Roman things in there. We don't hear about it in the Bible, but it's a large Roman-type city. But Jesus doesn't take them there. He takes them all the way, and he doesn't... There's many other Roman cities around, but he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. So why does Jesus go to this city? This is one of the most important phrases, moments in the whole of the Bible that prepares the disciples that for the first time, a human being has had a revelation, a spiritual revelation of who Jesus is. Caesarea Philippi was spiritually an incredibly significant city. Caesarea Philippi was, 
was at the most northern boundary of the, the, the land of Israel, the tribes of the tribe of Dan, the most far, furthest northern part. You couldn't, you, even today when you go to Israel, you can, if you go any further, you're into the, the no man's land of Lebanon where there's a lot of Israeli soldiers hidden away and a lot of mines and a lot of guns involved. And that was the same. It was always the same. That was a boundary. It housed the temple of the northern tribes of Israel, which was eventually destroyed by the Assyrians. It's the beginning of the most fertile part of Israel. Has anybody had the privilege of going to Israel? Just a few of you. It's, it's actually a lot like Australia in that it's very dry. If you've been in the outback of Australia, very dry, very desolate, not many places where you can grow food. This was one of the places in Israel where you could not only grow food, but a lot of food. So it was incredibly important. Most importantly, it was the beginning of the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River, we know as a place where Jesus was baptised, but it's also a spiritual metaphor. That being, when the water comes down the Jordan River, it is pure. All, most of the sources of the Jordan River actually come up out of the ground. It's not like most rivers that it starts with some small creeks and streams and things like that. It actually comes out of rocks, out of the ground, and literally flows like that. It's very cold because that water comes from uh, Mount Hermon directly above it, which is a snow-capped mountain. So it's cold, it's pure, it's clean. By the time it goes down, and I, I could go to the baptism course if you want two hours of teaching on this. But it goes down and it flows down through the Jordan River where Jesus was baptised, where John the Baptist was baptising. People were cleansed and it ends up in the Dead Sea, the most toxic, unlivable water in the whole world today. And that's a metaphor of purity, as we'll talk about in a minute, coming from the throne of God, flowing down, washing and cleansing our sin, and then sin being the toxic remainder all by itself as it's been washed away and been made clean from us. So he's going to the place of spiritual purity. He's going to the metaphor of this is where the, the water from the throne, purity from the throne of God is flowing. The water of Caesarea Philippi is clean, it's clear, it's cold. And let me tell you, when you're in 40 degrees plus in the middle of summer, cold water is really, really good. It emerges out of the, out of the cave and flows all year round. To the ancients, this was a miracle. The first time when you, when you read the stories about the water flowing out of the rock, I couldn't comprehend it because water flows out of a tap. Water flows out of a bottle. Or water flows out of a river. Until you actually see water coming out of a rock, you, you can imagine that, right? You're thinking, rock, how's that possible? Well, we know the way it's possible, but to the ancients, it seemed like the absolute provision of the gods in one way or another. So to Israel, it was a provision of the one true God. It watered the crops, it watered the animals, and created spiritual cleansing for them, which was part of their rites and their rituals. 
So this metaphor is from pure life to pure death. So Jesus is going to this spot where there is life and where it begins. We look over through, the, through different scriptures. We look in the book of Revelation and it's, and it's sort of also in the book of Genesis where the rivers flow, the idea that spiritual and natural rivers, these sources flow from the throne of God. So this is why Jesus going to this highly spiritual place. And when you go to highly spiritual places, there is always competition in the spiritual world for it. All the way throughout history, you go to every place where there's been a significant Christian, godly spiritual event, the enemy has tried to overtake it and build a temple, build something, destroy it, obliterate it, remove it. There is always spiritual competition going on. So with that in mind, let's read from my passage today with this Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you, like every one of us here. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say that you are Peter, which means a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it or will not prevail. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever you forbid on earth will be forbid in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. There is so much in these verses. I can only just do a little bit of unpacking of them this morning. So let's start by going back to the first century Caesarea Philippi. And let's have a look at what the actual city would have looked like at that time. I had the privilege of studying archaeology at Hebrew University in Israel for three months. And this was one of the regions that we studied. And before and after this period of time, if you leave it on that side, before and after this period of time, it was agricultural land. Even today at the archaeological park across the road is a farm. Where this, because the land's so rich, they're still farming it today. So this is what Caesarea Philippi looked like in the time of Jesus. So if we, if we see right at the back across that wall where it says the Grotto of Pan and a little line going towards it, that's the place that we're talking about, the cave where the water comes out. And you can see some temples around here, but what you can see here is an artist's rendition of a classic Roman city. This place of itself has never, ever had a large city before or after this period in history because it doesn't warrant having a large city. 
But the Romans knew the power and the strategic spiritual importance of this city. And so they built walls around it. They had Roman guards there to protect it. And it was a place that was a very large, important Roman city of its time. Now, on this map, we see the grotto. As I said, the grotto of Pan is where the fresh water supply comes from. And Caesarea Philippi was a large, modern city. So I wanted to have a quick look at some of the temples that were there. So this is where Jesus is going and he's saying, who do you say that I am? What's the environment? So let's go to the next slide. The first temple is the Temple of Augustus. Now, I'm going to try and make this relevant for you today, okay? Don't worry, I'm not going... I love Roman history in the Bible. I'm, I could geek out all day with you. But for those of you who are a little bit worried now, I'm going to move fairly quickly. Um, Temple of Augustus. This was... The Romans had created... had declared themselves to be gods, the emperors declared themselves to be a god and then required the guys after them to build temples for them. Does this sound like anyone today? The government. They declare themselves to be God. They declare themselves to be the most important thing. And guess and, and you know that this is a spiritual thing because it's not an Australian thing, it's not an American thing, it's not a British thing. It's every government around the world convinces themselves that they are, now they have an important role, but that they are the most important thing. It's a spirit that's going on. And I love the fact that for thousands of years the water came out of this cave uninterrupted and they decided that they would build a temple over the entrance to the river. Romans were smart. They built a building over a river where the water would flow out, probably about the, the width of 10 of these chairs. Even if you had to do that today, it would be a relatively significant task. So they completely shows the ego of Rome that they could conquer nature. The ego of government, that we can conquer anything. Now, it's sort of going to... I can say a lot more, but we'll keep, I'll attempt to keep moving forward. So, they, Rome said, you, you can worship whatever god you want. Hmm, I can worship whatever god I want. As long as you pay tribute to us first. This led to the death of thousands of believers under Nero and successive Roman emperors because the church or those believers would not worship Nero as a god. They would not worship emperor. Sorry, um, Augustus as a god. Caesar as a god. They said there is one true god. And Rome could not handle that. So that's why the persecution of the church started and went for the next 250 years. All the governments of the world today believe that they are more important than the church or more important than Islam, more important than Hinduism, more important than Judaism, because it's a spirit. And when you get into the spiritual world, it's the spirits will compete against each spirit, even if they're evil spirits. So the second one is the grotto of Pan, or the cave of Pan, behind the temple of Augustus. So you can see a little dark. 
It's a large cave, probably about as big as this building, the entrance. Large cave. And the cave was seen as the very source of fertility for the region. Now, when you go into the ancient world, the number one important thing is water. You don't have water, you die. You don't have water, you can't grow food. You don't have water, you can't have animals to feed off that. And as the deer panteth for the water, because the water is so important. So this is a link to prosperity and wealth. And where do we have the worship of prosperity and wealth today? We have it in the stock market. We have it in the banks. We have it in the finance sector where prosperity and wealth is controlled. Today, think of, think of property prices and property prices going up and property prices going down or the stock market going crazy last year. It's, it's very much people who come... We use the word worship, they would use the word focus, undue attention. I've got superannuation. I try and do some investments, but I don't have undue attention to it, where it consumes all my time and energy and thought. So the next one is the court of Pan. What I'm trying to do is to show you that each one of these is alive and well today. That's what I'm trying to show you. The court of Pan and the nymphs. This was on the, on the right and, and Pan. And this is where the idea of the Pan flute comes from, if you're familiar with that. Uh, was often accompanied with nymphs, which were lower gods. Pan was a high god. These were lower gods. They were female. And they were lower gods. And they, the, the nymphs would care for the animals and the, and the plants. And that was their job. And Pan and Nymph together, and the Nymphs together were associated with sex, lust, seduction, music, and getting drunk. Sounds like a nightclub to me. <laughs> and that was, that, that was sort of the attention and focus of what was going on. And then we got Zeus in the next temple, the temple of Zeus, the father of the gods, the king of the gods. And the one simple way that you can think of Zeus is Zeus is a control freak. Zeus was the god who controlled every other god. So he was the god of control. The things that control our life that appear that we don't have control over. So the, the rain falls in, in Queensland today. In the ancient world, they would go, what god have we upset that there's a flood, that there's a virus, that there's a bushfire? Things that were appeared to be out of their control. The interesting thing about this is that we think that we're in control today. The world and that spirit says to us phrases like, I control my destiny. I choose what sort of life I have. I vote for the type of government that I want. It's illusion of control. And the enemy wants to make us think that we can control our life in every single aspect. We have choices, but we don't control everything. And if we get into the illusion that we control everything, you want to you, you talk about the epidemic of mental health? 
We've been sold the lie that we can control everything and guess what? We've lived two years out of control. And it's literally doing people's heads in. The next one. So control is worshipping at the foot of Zeus. The next one, the court of Nemesis. This is, this is my favourite one. If you like reality TV, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, this is your world. Nemesis was the goddess of anger. Oh my goodness, the amount of abuse I get every morning on Facebook. Because we've got ads that go around the world saying, you can study for free. I get abuse every morning. Every morning. From Christians, non-Christians, people who don't like the guy's haircut, his t-shirt, people's hands. It's, it's, it's that... It's, it really is the world of anger in social media. Revenge for evil deeds, undeserved good fortune. I grew up Catholic. Anybody else here grew up Catholic? You will know in the Catholic mindset, particularly amongst my Italian friends, if anything good happens, you don't tell anyone because God will take it away from you. Anybody heard that? It's a very Catholic idea it's the goddess Nemesis. You don't tell anybody about your good fortune because Nemesis will come and take it away from you. Will come and get this thing from you. Have you ever looked at a person and said, that's not fair, I serve God, how come they've got that, I've been praying for it, don't have it? Okay, not willing to put our hands up for that one. That's in the realm of nemesis. That spirit that gets into our soul, that upsets us. And I've said it. I've said, why do people outside the church care for me more than the people inside the church? Oh, that one's hit home. <laughs> but it is. It's the enemy getting into our heads and playing around with us. It's a spirit that's always been there and will always be there. This is the goddess of the realm of every TV and movie plot. When you look at them, basically the essence is hatred, revenge. You have something and I'm going to take it because you didn't deserve it. I'm more deserving. So there has to be a goodie and a baddie. Oh, how much, we got, how much time have I got yet, Pastor? Five minutes? You've got to give me another five? Okay, good. Next one, quickly. And this is my introduction. Uh, the, I just really want to come back. Uh, the Temple of Pan and the Dancing Gods. Very simply, this is chaos and panic that's resolved here. Fear and panic. Uh, and, the, and the way that the gods resolve this is through... Pan is a god of fear, which is where we get the word panic from. Pan, panic. And sex. Sex fixes everything. Does that sound familiar? If you just call me by the right personal pronoun, my life will be better. If I just have a partner that treats me well, if I can sleep with anybody that I want to sleep with, things will be better. That's the spirit coming through Pan. Okay, so Jesus comes to a place of political power, religious power, wealth and prosperity, revenge and hatred. And now I've finished my introduction. So who does Jesus, so what happens 
Who do people say that I am? In summary, not the Messiah. This is not the world who's saying this. This is the believers of the time who are waiting for Messiah. Jesus, you're not the Messiah. And the overwhelming message that is being prepared is, who do you say that I am? Peter gets a revelation. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the rock amongst all of this nonsense that's going on. I bring you here, and I'm I'm preaching this sermon. I know I've gone way too much information. But what I'm trying to show you is we live in the same world today. Of chaos, spiritual, but temples, they're just not built like the old days temples, but they're there all around us. Who do you say that I am? Because we need to be able to say it in the chaos. Not in Jerusalem, where the temple is and everyone's nice. We need to be able to say it in the chaos of the spiritual craziness that we live in all the time. But I believe we're particularly seeing today. Jesus is the basis of my foundation. Jesus is my rock. My confession in Him is an immovable rock that will never be moved, that will never be shaken. And that's the revelation that we need to have. The church and Jesus lived most of their life under persecution and chaos. I know many of you have come from countries or have family where you know exactly what that's like. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Let me read that again. Jesus said, upon this rock, the confession of your faith that I am the Messiah, the anointed one, that I am more powerful than every other God, every government, every control. And you see from that, that the the apostles didn't go off and try and pull down the temples. They didn't waste their time getting involved in political debate and argument. They actually said, I know who I am in Christ and I am going to live my life in that confession. I'm going to change the lives of other people one at a time. One at a time. Upon this rock, the confession of faith, I will build you. I will build you as a believer and the powers of hell will not prevail. Jesus went to the most spiritually evil place that was trying to take away the spirituality and the purity of God and said, Jesus is the foundation of foundation, the truth of truths. Jesus' confession, your confession in Jesus is the immovable, indestructible rock. And give you one more encouragement. He didn't say start a political party, although God bless anybody who does that. But he didn't say start a political party or a movement, and I wish more Christians would get involved in that. But what he did say is, I have given you the keys. I have given you the keys. Pick up your keys. Your key is the Bible. Read it. Your key is prayer. 
pray, speak in tongues. Your key is to spend time with the Holy Spirit. So when all this chaos is going on, use your keys. Use your keys. Don't fight in their temples. Don't fight in their places until you've picked up the keys. Pick up the key of prayer. Pick up the key of worship. I was so glad to be in a church where the worship was directed at God this morning. That's a special thing, let me tell you. So take the keys out of your pocket and break the locks and be free in Jesus' name. Amen. Because upon this rock, you will build His church and the powers of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. Let me pray for you. Lord, I praise and I thank you, Father. Touch us. Touch your people, I pray. Bless us in Jesus' mighty name. Oh, Lord, I praise and I thank you. I command fear to be gone. Replace with the peace of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.